All right, let's study the Bible together. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me. We're going to look tonight at the book of Ezekiel. We're continuing in our overview series, looking at each book of the Bible uh, one week at a time. And tonight we have the great big book of Ezekiel before us. We looked last week at the book of Lamentations, the week before the book of, of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel share a similar historical context. Uh, Jeremiah begins prophesying uh, decades before the fall of the city of Jerusalem, right through the fall of the city of Jerusalem. The book of Lamentations is set in the midst of the fall of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Judah fall as an act of God's judgment against them for their idolatry and their unfaithfulness. And the people of Israel are carried away as captives into Babylon. They are conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, whose name you might remember from the book of Daniel. Daniel is an exile in Babylon under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. It's there that Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and, and various other uh, very popular experiences are had by Daniel in the book of Daniel. So that is the season of Old Testament history that we find ourselves in here in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesies to the pilgrims in exile in Babylon. In fact, if you were to go and read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1 of Ezekiel's prophecy, there's some historical setting for that. Jerusalem falls four years after the initial vision that Ezekiel experiences here. So most of Ezekiel's ministry, save the first four years, falls within the context of the exile period itself. The people of Israel are carried away into captivity after Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, sacks the city of Jerusalem and spend the next 70 years in, this, in the empire of Babylon uh, there under a somewhat oppressive hand, although enjoying some degree of peace and prosperity within that foreign land. We talked last week about how the experience of the people of Israel in Babylon becomes the example for us as believers in Jesus of being the pilgrims and the sojourners and the strangers in a foreign land that we now are as followers of Jesus. I hope that you are here for that. That, that, that message, that concept is critical for navigating the next days and weeks with the presidential election underway that's incredibly contentious. And everybody has a strong opinion. My counsel to you last week, and, and it continues to be this week, is that we vote biblical convictions, but we vote them like foreigners. Our joy is not attached to presidential outcomes because this is not our home. We are strangers and sojourners in a foreign land, much like the people of Israel so many centuries ago. This place, this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven eternally with Jesus Christ. There's a great deal of Ezekiel that is very sad. In fact, the first key passage that we're going to look at in chapters 10 and 11 is among the saddest passages in all of the Old Testament. Some of the imagery there might escape us at first glance, but if you really pause to think about what Ezekiel is describing in those verses, it's a frightful thing to consider. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, um, the 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 Ark of the Covenant is carried away, and Ichabod 
is uh, th the identity at that point. Ichabod is sort of written over the city of Jerusalem because the ark has been carried away, meaning the glory of God has left us. That's exactly what's unfolding in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11 as the glory of God leaves the temple and ultimately leaves the city of Jerusalem. The glory of God had departed the over the course of time. So a deep and dark season in Israel's history. Ezekiel was a priest and a prophet during very dark days in Judah's history, the 70-year period of captivity. He uses prophecies, parables, signs, and symbols to dramatize God's message to his exiled people. It's the prophecies, the parables, the signs, and the symbols that give so many people so much trouble with the book of Ezekiel. There was a tradition in ancient Jewish history where rabbis would prohibit people under 30 years old from reading the book of Ezekiel because they were fearful that the challenges of interpreting Ezekiel would, would discourage people in their study of the scripture. Ezekiel is a somewhat challenging book when you sit down and begin to read. But if you'll read carefully and you'll read it as it is intended, you'll find that there's a great deal of food for the soul here in the book of Ezekiel. My heart is a little heavy this evening as I share with you, and I want to address some interpretive issues in the book of Ezekiel that can be tricky, directly related to my heaviness of heart this evening. There, there are heretical interpretations of Ezekiel that are just crazy and unbiblical and directly connected to a, a long string of heresy that will lead your soul to destruction if you give yourself over to that kind of delusion. Just in the past week, and I'm going to speak to this again on Sunday, and I'll be naming no names tonight, but there is a member of our fellowship who has come under the delusion of a strange heretical teaching which is broadcast on all of your televisions. It's identified as the Shepherd's Chapel and it's led by a man who is now dead. His son now leads that ministry named Arnold Murray. It's hellish and demonic and unbiblical and unchristian. And I will just not tolerate that within the fellowship of our church. Now, I note that tonight because there have been efforts by that particular person to win some of the members of our church to that radical misunderstanding of the scripture. And again... I just will not tolerate that. I will work slowly and deliberately toward reconciliation as much as I possibly can, um, but, but teaching that is in conflict with the gospel, we simply cannot abide with. So I want you to be aware of that. And I want to say a word or two about the content of that teaching so that if you are approached with that, you will be able to address that. And my hope is that you will return um, love and kindness and generosity and make a genuine effort to win anyone who has been swept away by this strange delusion to true faith in Jesus Christ. This comes up because one of the stranger elements of the teaching of this cult, and I do believe that it is a cult, is that something like a UFO is described in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, I know that sounds incredibly strange to you, but I promise you, 
it's not the most strange thing or the strangest thing that's born out of this teaching. If you will bear in mind that that level of insanity is associated with this, it might be helpful for you in staving off any deception that might otherwise come your way. At the heart of this teaching is the idea that the sin of Eve in the garden was that she was sexually intimate with Satan. And the product of her intimacy with Satan was Cain. And that the descendants of that uh, unholy relationship are the Middle Eastern people. And although they deny that this is a part of their teaching, the clear implication is that African Americans are the result of that connection as well. Therefore, seeing many minority people as subhuman and soulless people. Now, if you call their hand on that, they're going to deny that that's true, but that's an undeniable aspect of their teaching. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They have strange ideas about the book of Revelation that bear no resemblance whatsoever to the teaching of the Scripture. And I'm happy to answer any other questions that you might have about these doctrines. But if you are encountered with them, I say with all of the confidence in my heart that I can muster that they bear no resemblance whatsoever to the teaching of the Scripture. That gospel is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, that message is so out of step. We don't get to just, here's the thing that's frustrating about it. You don't get to just make up what you want the gospel to be. You don't get to just make up what words in the Bible mean. You just don't get the privilege of doing that. Like there's some things that are just as straightforward as two plus two equals four. You don't get to take what you want to be true and shoehorn that into a biblical text. You just don't get the freedom to do that. In fact, there's a sense in which it really doesn't matter what you or I think. What matters is what the Bible says. I believe are two of the most irrelevant words that can be spoken in the context of determining the truthfulness of a biblical text. It doesn't matter what you believe the text says. What matters is what the text says. So I know that comes off as a little terse, and, and I want you to pray that I would manage this situation with gospel grace. But given the fact that effort has been made at reaching members of our body with this strange teaching, I have no recourse but to share that with you and warn you against it. And I would ask that you would pray for those who have come under this. It's sort of a strange thing in that I keep running into this guy and this strange teaching. The first time I encountered these heresies was 17 years ago in 2003, as I'd been a believer for two years. And there was a little bit of a foothold that this cult found within the rural church that I was attending even before I was in ministry and an effort at winning my granny to this particular teaching. And we had some conversations and did a little research and found that these people are, are crazy. And I, I don't say that to be hurtful. Sometimes I can. I, well, sometimes I'm a jerk. And I don't mean to be in this setting. Um, but sometimes you got to call a spade a spade. So be aware of this, that it's out there, that it is what it is. And again, I'm glad to answer any additional questions that I might. In Ezekiel chapter 1, we have a vision of the glory of God. And it is a somewhat strange vision if you don't understand the conventions of apocalyptic literature. And we don't, as Westerners, understand the conventions of apocalyptic literature. When you pick up the newspaper, you know that you read the front page differently than you read the funny pages. There are certain conventions of reading that are 
um, connected to the genre that you're reading. As a matter of fact, you don't read the front page the same way you read the sports page. We read, we understand intuitively genre and what it looks like or feels like to read within those particular genre. Well, we don't write in apocalyptic in our culture. We don't have movies, for the most part, in apocalyptic in our culture. So this is a different experience for us, right? In spite of the strangeness of apocalyptic literature, the use of signs and symbols and imagery, even then, we don't get to make the signs and the symbols and the imagery mean anything that we want to. It's been fascinating to me. This is quite the rabbit trail, but I think this is a helpful conversation. I have been locked into and really interested in discussions related to the appointment of our most recent Supreme Court Justice. You do realize, don't you, that the lion's share of the conversation around the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett is related to hermeneutics issues, hermeneutics being the science of interpretation. All of this talk about originalism, that is, that is the approach, the philosophy, the scientific method that she intends to use in interpreting the Constitution. And here's what it means. An originalist is someone who believes that the meaning of a text is fixed by its author, not by its reader. In other words, we don't just pick something up and read it to mean something that's entirely different than what the author intended it to mean. And the same is true of the Bible. We don't have the license to pick up the Bible and to read it in a way that is wildly different than what the author intended it to mean. The reason I know that Ezekiel is not describing an unidentified flying object in Ezekiel chapter 1 is because Ezekiel would not have even understood the notion of an unidentified flying object. The reason that I know that the mark of the beast of Revelation is not the Apple iPhone, it's not your social security number, and it's not even a microchip. The reason I know is because John the Apostle 2,000 years ago would have never fathomed a microchip, would have never considered an Apple iPhone, and certainly do, knew nothing of a social security number. The meaning of biblical text are fixed by the author that writes them under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, and we don't have the license to change what God's Word says. This, this is basic, foundational, fundamental biblical hermeneutics. This is the way we interpret the Bible, and we must be steadfast. We must, that, that is a conservative approach to reading the Bible, and we ought to be conservative as we read God's Word. We ought to take with deadly serious, seriousness, the responsibility to rightly divide the Word of God. So the next time there's a debate about Supreme Court appointments, listen carefully to those conversations. And what you'll find is that the competition is between an author-centered or originalist perspective on interpreting the Constitution and a reader-centered interpretation of the Constitution, which allows for that paperwork to, to, to change, to transform, with each reader that takes it up, with every passing generation. The Word of God does not change. It does not change. It means the same today as it did a thousand years ago. And in the case of texts that existed, it means the same as it meant 3,000 years ago. The Word of God does not change. 
So that's my rabbit trail tonight to sort of put you on guard against any kind of false teaching and to sort of prop up or defend the, the necessity of, of laboring to understand what the text means, not what we think it means or what we want it to mean within our life context at the moment, right? Y'all all tracking with me? So let's look first at Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11. This is that dark and sad part of Ezekiel that I referred to moments ago. In chapter 10 and verse 1, the Bible says, Then I looked, and there above the expanse over the heads of the cherubim was something like sapphire stone, resembling the shape of a throne that appeared above them. And the Lord spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Go inside the wheelwork beneath the cherubim, fill your hands with hot coals from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. So he went in as I watched. Now, if I could just unpack for you for just a moment the imagery of those few verses. It is a reference back to that initial vision of Ezekiel chapter 1, where God is enthroned in great glory. And yes, it is a strange vision. There are beasts included in the vision, and the throne of God is set on wheels, and it moves about. The way apocalyptic imagery works is that every part of the vision is not intended to bear or to carry a great degree of meaning. Every part of the vision is intended to draw focus and to highlight or to emphasize the real focus, the central focus of, of the image. I say this about the book of Revelation all the time, and one day we'll work through Revelation here, and you'll either love me or hate me when it's all over. When you, when you, if you look at a mountain scene, the purpose of the mountain scene is not to focus on or to highlight. There is no real meaning in the bird in the background or the bush that is in the foreground, right? The purpose of the mountain scene is to depict the beauty of the mountain. The purpose of the imagery of Ezekiel chapter 1 is not to draw meaning from the beast and the wheels and the jewels that are a part of that image. Those ancillary images and symbols are there to draw glory to the focus of the symbols, which is God in his great glory. So we have reference to that here in our passage. And God says, go into the glory, go to the foot of the throne, go inside the wheelwork beneath the cherubim or the angels and fill your hands with hot coal from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. These are the hot coals of offerings that have been made before God, before the throne of God. Take the hot coals and scatter them over the city. Judgment is coming. That's what's being symbolized here. In verse 3, the Bible says, Now the cherubim were standing to the south of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. The glory of the Lord rose from above the cherub to the threshold of the temple. The temple was filled with the cloud. The court was filled with the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the cherubim's wings could be heard as far as the outer court. It was like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And after the Lord commanded the, the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from inside the wheelwork from among the cherub, the man went in and stood beside a wheel. And the cherub reached out his hand to the fire that was among them. He took some and put it in the hands of the man clothed in linen who took it and went out. And the cherubim appeared to have the form of human hands under their wings. 
And I looked, and there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub. The luster of the wheels was like the gleam of beryl. In appearance, all four had the same form, like a wheel within a wheel. When they moved, they would go in and go in any of the four directions without pivoting as they moved. But whenever the head faced, wherever the head faced, they would go in that direction without pivoting as they went. Their entire bodies, including their backs, hands, wings, and the wheels that the four of them had were full of eyes all around. And as I listened, the wheels were called the wheel work. Each one had four faces. First face was that of a cherub, the second that of a man, the third that of a lion, and the fourth that of an eagle. The cherubim ascended. These were the living creatures I'd seen by the Kibar Canal. That's in Babylon. And when the cherubim moved, the wheels moved beside them. And when they lifted their wings to rise from the earth, even the wheels didn't veer away from them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when they ascended, the wheels ascended with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Now, just a simple interpretation um, of, of what we've just witnessed or read of in that passage. God is on his throne. And his throne is attended by angels referred to as cherubim in our passage. And the beasts have reference to the great power and the great glory that God on his throne enjoys. And the wheels are a reference to the fact that God is on the move. In the context of Ezekiel, he is on the move in judgment even against his people. Now, does that sound like a crazy far-fetched interpretation? One of the things that I want you to understand about the way apocalyptic imagery works is that it's not unique to the Bible. There are extra-biblical texts where these images are used and so well understood. So anyone in Ezekiel's day that would have heard this vision or read this prophecy would have immediately understood what was being described here. Now the movement begins to take place in verse 18. This is the sad part of our passage. Then the glory of the Lord moved away from the threshold of the temple, and it stood above the cherubim. The cherubim lifted their wings and ascended from the earth right before my eyes. The wheels were beside them as they went. The glory of the God of Israel was above them, and it stood at the entrance to the eastern gate of the Lord's house. These were the living creatures I'd seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kibar Canal, and I recognized that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, and each had four wings with a form of human hands under their wings. Their faces looked like the same faces I'd seen by the Kibar Canal. Each creature went straight ahead. The picture that you have there is the beginning of the movement of God out of the temple, out of the eastern gate, and eventually out of the city of Jerusalem. As we said earlier, the glory of God is leaving the city of Jerusalem. Let me say that again. The glory of God has left the temple and is leaving the city of Jerusalem. Now, I know that God is omnipresent. You understand that as well. But there is something about the manifest glory of God that that can be unique to a certain location as God is pleased to reveal himself in such a way. We have here a bird's eye view of God's movement through the temple from one place to the next, each closer to the exit than the last. And finally, he completely departs the premises. In the days prior to the exile of the people of Judah, they believed the temple would be their preservation from judgment. Remember Jeremiah 7? Do not say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these, believing that the presence of the temple 
or your participation in temple activities would protect you necessarily from the judgment of God that was to come. Your religious ritual cannot protect you from the judgment of God that is to come. Only saving faith in Jesus Christ. In the context of Jeremiah 7, only the kind of change of heart that will result in everyday action that would be reflective of God's will, God's design for our life, only that kind of change of heart can really keep us from the judgment of God that is to come. What Ezekiel is describing here reminds us that the presence of the temple could not protect the people of Judah from judgment, nor the political stability of the line of David, nor the past blessings of God, nor their religious activity. They are in the temple worshiping while the glory of God departs. None of those external activities, none of their religious activities could prevent the departure of God's great glory. There's a great deal said in chapter 11 about the, the corrupt nature of Israel's leaders. There's a special measure of judgment for those leaders that lead the people astray. This is the thing that frustrates me so sorely about false teaching. It doesn't frustrate me with those who come under the delusion of false teaching. But if I'm just being, if you just want to behind the scenes, who is Brother Wade when no one's watching, it makes me want to drive to where those people are and put my hands on them physically. That's what it makes me want to do. There is a special measure of condemnation and judgment for those who actively participate, not only in the breaking of God's commands, but in teaching others to do so also. There's a deadly seriousness about the judgment that is to be exacted against the leadership of Jesus I want you to see. I turn over to Ezekiel chapter 33. We've tried to choose key texts from biblical books for these Wednesday nights that are reflective of the basic content of the book itself. I think these three passages do just that. Ezekiel 10 and 11 speak to the deadly seriousness of the exile and the departure of God's glory, how sad and how dark this season is in the history of Judah. Chapter 33 speaks to the responsibility of the faithful in warning sinners against the judgment of God that is to come. And then in the last passage we'll see uh, the dry bones that are called to life speak to the hope that remains for us by faith in Jesus Christ. In Ezekiel chapter 33, God calls Ezekiel to be a watchman on the wall. The picture, the imagery is of one who stands atop an ancient city wall and watches out for invading armies. And should he see an invading army coming, coming it is his responsibility both day and night to turn and cry down to the city below that danger is coming. The position that Ezekiel is to bear, his responsibility is that of the watchman on the wall. And it's the responsibility of every faithful follower of Jesus, everyone aware of impending judgment, of the danger that is to come, is to call down to an unknowing city below to warn them of the judgment that is to come and of the safety and the shelter that can be found in Jesus Christ. In verse 1, the Bible says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and tell them. Suppose I bring the sword against the land, and the people of that land select a man from among them, appoint him as their watchman. He sees the sword coming against the land and blows his trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet but ignores the warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. 
Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but ignored the warning, his blood is on his own hands. If he had taken the warning, he would have saved his life. However, if the watchman sees the sword coming but doesn't blow the trumpet so that people aren't warned and the sword comes and takes away their lives, then they've been taken away because of their iniquity. But I will hold the watchman accountable. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. As for you, son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, wicked one, you will surely die, but you don't speak to warn him about his way. That person will die for his iniquity, yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn a wicked person to turn him from his way and he doesn't turn from it, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have saved. The severity of the language that is used here in the passage could be said consistently of us. Surely our lives are well kept. There is peace for our soul. We are in no threat, sheltered under the blood of Jesus. But there is a certain culpability, a certain responsibility that comes with being aware that judgment is to come and holding the message of the gospel, the life-saving and life-changing message of the gospel in our hearts. There's a responsibility that comes with that, right? If we know that judgment is coming and we know that the only safe place is in Christ, we have a unique responsibility to share with those around us with a sense of urgency and awe that indeed danger is coming. And the only safe place is to find rest for our souls and safekeeping against the judgment that is to come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is, in essence, the ministry of Ezekiel during the days of exile. This is, in some regards, the ministry of Jeremiah just a few years before. And it is the ministry of every blood-bought believer in Christ as ambassadors for Christ, aware of the judgment that our sin deserves, to warn the, to warn the world around us first that judgment is coming, and second, that there is safety for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned to you a moment ago that the latter part of Ezekiel speaks to the hope that is held forth for us. And that was true for those in Ezekiel's day as well. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 37. Probably the best known text in the book of Ezekiel, even those who may struggle with understanding the, uh, the, the whole message of Ezekiel will appreciate and take great delight in Ezekiel chapter 37, specifically these first 14 verses. Even in children's movies and books, there are depictions of this valley of dry bones described in Ezekiel 37 as a place of fear and danger and even evil. But, but these verses serve to remind us of the great hope that is ours by the power of a good and faithful God. In verse 1, the Bible says, The hand of the Lord was on me yet again, and he brought me out by his Spirit, set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them, and there were a great many of them on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I replied, Lord God, only you know. Practically, scientifically, can bones live? Dry bones parched in the sun, let alone a valley of 
dry bones parched in the sun? Ezekiel responds, understanding who it is he's conversing with. Lord God, only you know. In verse 4, the Bible says, He said to me, prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel says, I prophesied in verse 7 as I had been commanded. And while I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. As I looked, tendons appeared on them, flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says, breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, the breath entered them and they came to life and stood on their feet a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Look how they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is the, what, what the Lord God says, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from the my people and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know that I am Yahweh, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken, and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. The vision that Ezekiel has here is impressive, right? He stands before a valley of dry bones. We don't have valleys of dry bones in Western society, but there are places where there are still valleys of dry bones. Probably the closest thing we've come to observing a valley of dry bones is that scene from The Lion King that our children have all forced us to struggle through, right? And Ezekiel preaches to dry bones. A reminder to us is these bones are pulled together and sinew and muscle and flesh cover the bones that that we serve a God who has the power to raise the dead I, there have been times when I felt like Ezekiel preaching over a valley of dry bones and God has been pleased to raise the dead he still does right we were dead in sins and trespasses. We have been made alive to God in Christ Jesus. I don't do it as much anymore because I, well, I just don't have the time and things are just sort of different now. But in years past, I, I, I've, I've preached revivals in a lot of rural churches and for whatever reason would get invitations to go and, and to do those. And there'd be times you'd show up and, and, and you'd go to this place and there'd be a few dozen of you out there maybe. And it's just dead, you know. It, it is a valley of dry bones. And it's frustrating and you think, what, is, what in the world does the Lord have me, what am I doing here? And, and often God is pleased to call dry bones together 
and raise the dead to life. He still does it. He, he still does it. Now, we don't realize the extent to which he does it, but he still does it. He has the power to raise a dead nation to life. That's what we observe in the vision of Ezekiel 37, and it's what we see in the history of Israel. Seventy years of exile pass, and God replants and restores the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem, and even raises the temple in construction once more. He has the power to literally raise the dead to life. We see it in John chapter 11 as Jesus stands at the mouth of Lazarus' grave and cries, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus, grave clothes and all. Jesus himself is raised on the third day. Somewhere along the way, familiarity fatigue has settled in and we fail to see the wonder in what God does in raising his three-day dead son from the grave, the cold and and rigor mortis and lifeless body of the Son of God lay in a historical grave at a moment in time in human history. And before the sun would break on that great day, the stone was rolled away and the once lifeless body of Jesus walked out in great victory, the keys of death and hell in his hand. Our God has the power to raise the dead, to bring life from death, he raised a vibrant church in the book of Acts from the deadness of Pharisaical religion. Every time an individual bows their head in humility and sincerely calls upon the name of Jesus, he raises one dead in sin to life in Jesus Christ. And Sunday by Sunday, through the preaching of his word, he raises churches that are numb to the point of lifelessness to a zealous spirit in revival and renewal and awakening. Don't ever, ever, ever make the mistake of forgetting how great the power of our God truly is. Perhaps the imagery of Ezekiel 37 attests as powerfully as any other passage in the Bible to the strength of our God. It's time that Christian people stop despairing over the condition of the world around us and the plight of so-called Christianity and be reminded to have gospel confidence because he is greater than any earthly power that you've ever been exposed to. There is nothing that can stop or stay his hand. He is alive and well and at work in the world around us. Whether we choose to join his work or not, his will will be done. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It was a dark day in the history of Israel. The glory of God had left the temple. But God would soon come again. Keep the promises he'd made in the history of Israel. God always keeps his promises. And we're in some ways standing on the shoulder of the experience of a once dead nation raised to life by the power of God. A once dead people now raised to life by the power of God. Aren't you glad for what God has done for us? What, what have we to fear? Our God is great in power. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the mysteries of a book like Ezekiel and for the nourishment of our souls tonight. I, I pray, God, that, Lord, these very fundamental, foundational, base truths that we've discussed here tonight would be of encouragement and help to your people that as we leave the campus of this church that we would go with gospel confidence 
that we would go and share with a lost and dying world of what Christ has done for us and what by the power of the gospel he can do for them as well. Grant us boldness as we go. Give us divine appointments with lost who have been ready to receive the good news of the gospel through the work of your spirit and even the conditions of life. God, help us to be found faithful. Make us hand-to-plow people who never look back. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.